Welcome to the Jacksonville First Seventh-day Adventist Church Podcast, where we listen, learn, and love together. Our speaker today is Pastor Jonathan Pinato. Father, again, I just pray for the blessing of your Holy Spirit to be present with us as we consider the words of Scripture and as you give a greater clarity to us about who we are as a church, as a community of faith, where you have brought us from and where you are leading us to. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We learned in our previous sermon together that Adventist identity is strongly rooted in a heightened sense and in a heightened awareness of the second coming of Jesus. After all, we are Seventh-day Adventists, believing in the advent of Jesus. His return is a motivating factor in the proclamation of the everlasting gospel to all the world. It was that fire and it was that belief that led our early pioneers to do everything that they did, everything that we now see today. But our Adventist identity is not only rooted in a heightened awareness of the second coming of Jesus, but our identity as a people is also rooted in our prophetic understanding of Revelation chapter 12. So turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. And the Bible says, A great sign appeared in the heavens. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And, and then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. But she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And so here John sees this prophetic vision of a woman and then of this dragon of a woman who is about to give birth to a man-child. A woman in Bible prophecy represents the church or or God's people. Uh, The man-child that she was going to give birth to represents who? Jesus Christ. That's right. And the dragon represents Satan. The one persecuting the woman, the one persecuting God's people, the one trying to destroy God's people, the one trying to destroy Jesus. But then we see here at the end of verse 6 that it says that the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she would be taken care of for 1,260 days. Where have we seen this number before? In Daniel. That's right. In what chapter of Daniel? Daniel chapter 7. That's right. And we studied about that um, this whole last half of the year. Daniel 7, the time, times, and half a time, or the 1,260 years. 
And so what we see here is the same, the same prophecy that was prophesied in Daniel 7 from a different perspective using different imagery. In Daniel 7, we see that it's the little horn that is persecuting God's people for a time, times, and half a time. Here in Revelation chapter 12, we see the dragon persecuting the woman, being God's people, for 1,260 days. And as we continue reading in chapter 12, let's jump down to verse 13. It says, When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for, and there's that time again, time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. And so what Revelation 12 is describing to us is the history of the church, how the church began. It gave birth to Jesus. Jesus ascended into heaven. Then a persecution broke out on the church and the church had to flee into the wilderness, almost quite literally, for, a, for 1,260 years, from 538 to 1798, what we call the, the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages. Verse 15, then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. What we're seeing here is a a progress or a movement in time. Because verse 15 says, Then, speaking of a continuation or a sequence in time, Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river. Verse 16, But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. So I want to focus on these two images here. The water that is coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and then the earth, which opens its mouth and swallows the river, swallows the water that the dragon is spewing out of his mouth. So these are very two interesting symbols. In Bible prophecy, what does water represent? Yeah, many people, multitudes, nations, turn to Revelation chapter 17 and verse 15. Revelation 17 and verse 15. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. And so if we're applying this uh, into real life, what we are seeing here is that the dragon and this woman here in Revelation 17 is sitting on waters or waters are being spewed out of the dragon's mouth. The idea is that this dragon is in an area that is highly populated, what we would call the old world, Europe. That was where the majority of the world's population lived at that time, sequentially, historically. But then as we're nearing the end of the 1,260 years, as we're nearing that time period of 1798, and these waters are being thrown out, all these nations, these multitudes are going against the woman, then the earth appears. Now, if water represents a lot of people, and water is the opposite of earth, so if waters represent a lot of people... And the earth is the opposite of the water. What do you think earth represents in Bible prophecy? A desolated place. A wilderness, perhaps. An area that is sparsely populated. And so as we're following the sequence, the historical time period here, Revelation chapter 12, we see the persecution of God's people being in the midst of waters, being in the midst of nations, trying to be drowned out. And then all of a sudden, the earth appears. An area that is sparsely populated, an area that not a lot of people live in. 
And that land opens its mouth and swallows the river. So historically, around the 1700s, was there a, an area of the world that was discovered, that was sparsely populated? Yes, where, where was it? It was the Americas. It was the Americas. And, and just around that time period of 1798 was when our nation, the United States of America, was being formed and was being established. We had just been a nation for just a few years. In fact, many of our pilgrim fathers, they left the old world, they left Europe because of the oppression, and they came to this country seeking liberty and freedom. And so we see Revelation chapter 12 describing this process historically. Verse 15, verse 16, but the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing that river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And then verse 17, it comes and tells us again, then, again, sequential. So we're in the 1790s. We've just, the time times and half a time has just finished in the 1790s. And it says, then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commandments and have the testimony of Jesus. So historically, we're trying to think here. This prophecy, it's placed us in the late 1700s, and the Bible is telling us that in the late 1700s, God's people will be characterized as a remnant, as the King James Version says. Other translations say the rest of her offspring, and they will be characterized by keeping the commandments of God and having the testimony of Jesus. So what does that term remnant mean or the rest of her offspring mean? Well, I, I think I've showed you this picture before when we were at Joanne Fabrics, um, buying some beautiful fabrics for, uh, for the communion table and, some of, and the cross that we have. Do you guys miss that cross? You know, that, that, the beautiful fabric. We'll bring it back out again on Easter. But uh, so I was there and I saw that it said remnants, 50% off. Now, I think there's a sermon in that sign, but we're not going to preach it at this time. Remnants, 50% off. But what is a remnant or what what is the rest? A remnant is that which is left over. In this case with a cloth, those fragments that that are just kind of left over after everybody cuts what they want from the fabric. A remnant is that which is left over, that which remains. And so if we apply this to Revelation chapter 12, it's telling us that God's people have been persecuted for 1,260 years. Not much is left of God's people, but the little bit that is left of her offspring That little bit keeps the commandments of God and has the testimony of Jesus. So what we want to do this morning is look at three aspects of the remnant in Scripture. Aspect number one of the remnant is that it is faithful and that it is obedient. We see that here in Revelation 12, 17. They keep the commandments of God. But we also see it in other places in the book of Revelation. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. And verse 24. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 24. This, in fact, I believe is the first time in the book of Revelation that that word remnant is used. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 24. Do you have it there? The Bible says, Now I say to the rest of you. How do your translations read? To the rest or to the remnant? You know, it's the same word there for remnant. Now I say to the rest of you who remain in Thyatira, 
the faithful ones, the ones who remain, to those who do not hold to her teaching, to Jezebel's teaching, false teaching and false doctrine, to those of you who have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, to those to that little small minority in Thyatira, though the entire church has corrupted itself, yet God still in that church has a remnant, a small portion that remains faithful to him, I will not impose on you any other burden. So when we look at scripture and when we look at the book of Revelation, one of the characteristics of the remnant is faithfulness and obedience. Here's another uh, passage in Revelation that uses that same term, Revelation chapter 9 and verse 20. Revelation chapter 9 and verse 20. The Bible says, and the rest, it's the same word for remnant that's found in Revelation 12, 17. Now the rest of mankind, and this is in the middle of the seven trumpet plagues. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, still they did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons, idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So again, we have this concept in in the Bible that the word remnant, there can be a faithful remnant, or there can be an unfaithful remnant. But the remnant, God's remnant, must be found faithful. They must be found obedient. And obedience is a strong theme, a prominent theme in the book of Revelation. Revelation twenty-two fourteen. it says, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, that they may enter and go through the gates into the city. Obedience in the book of Revelation is very important. It's a very important theme. And in fact, obedience and faithfulness is a characteristic that distinguishes God's faithful people, his people in the end of time. A second aspect, a second characteristic of the remnant, first one being faithfulness and obedience. But the second characteristic of a remnant in scripture is that it is historical and that it is identifiable. And so, for example, sometimes we, we say that we speak about the, the church, um, the invisible church, that God has faithful people everywhere. And that is true. God has faithful people in every denomination, in every, in every faith group, in every nation, among every tribe, kindred, tongue, and people. But it's hard to identify who they are and, and where they are and, 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 uh, and, and what they're doing. But in Scripture, the remnant is not just some theoretical, unidentifiable group. The remnant is a very real, historical, identifiable group that you can say, yes, those are God's people. The first, the first use of the, the term remnant in Scripture is found in Genesis chapter 6 and 7. Guess uh, who the remnant was in Genesis 6 and 7? Noah. Noah. Genesis chapter 6 and 7 is about the flood. And if we were living in the time of the flood and we were to ask ourselves, who were the faithful ones to God? Could we clearly identify who they were? Yeah. How many of them were? There were eight of them. We could clearly identify them. If you believe God, if you're obedient to God, you will get on that ark and you will be found on that ark and you would be able to be clearly identified. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis. Genesis chapter 45. Here's another uh, usage of the term remnant in scripture. Genesis chapter 45 and verse 7. Genesis chapter 45 and verse 7. 
The second characteristic of remnant is that it is a historical and identifiable group of people. Genesis chapter 45 and verse 7. Do you have it there? Okay. The Bible says, and this is in the story of, of Joseph, and they're trying to make sense of why Joseph was sold into slavery and, and why that whole event happened. And Joseph, reflecting on it, he says, no, but God sent me ahead of you. Though you thought you were selling me into slavery, it was God who over, was overseen, and he sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to save your lives by a great deliverance. Now, if I were to ask you that question, who is the remnant in Joseph's time? Could you say, could you clearly identify who the remnant was? Yeah, you clearly would. There were 70 people from Jacob's family. That was the remnant. In fact, that is the concept of Israel. Israel was the remnant. Among all the nations of earth, God chose Israel. And you could clearly identify, say, this is God's people. So the first characteristic of the remnant is that they are faithful and that they are obedient. The second characteristic that we find of the remnant is that it is a historical reality. They they are very real, clearly identifiable, and a historical entity. And so just think about this as we're applying this verse, Revelation chapter 12, 17, and the time frame, the 1790s, the end of the 1,260 days. Think about this. A group that God has a group of people who are obedient to him, they obey his commandments, but not only do they obey his commandments, but you can also clearly identify, yes, this is God's people. This is his remnant. Just keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. The third characteristic of the remnant, turn back to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. The third characteristic of the remnant is that they have the testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus is the prophetic gift. The testimony of Jesus is the gift of prophecy. Now, this term is used in several places in the book of Revelation. Turn to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 2. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 2. John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. There's that term used again, the testimony of Jesus. Turn to verse 9. I, John, your brother and your companion in suffering and in the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. There's that word again. What, what is the testimony of Jesus? Well, let's look at this other passage here in Revelation 19. We're going to look at two passages, Revelation 19 and, and also Revelation 22. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the prophetic gift. It is the manifestation of the gift of prophecy. Now, the parallel passage, Revelation 22 and verse 8, and let's compare it here. 
Uh, it's almost a word-for-word -word comparison um, of Revelation 19. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets. In, in verse 19, it says, I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who have the testimony of Jesus. Do you see how there are synonyms for each other? The testimony of Jesus and the prophetic gift. And with all who keep the words of this scroll, worship God. So what we find here is that the testimony of Jesus is the manifestation of the gift of prophecy. And so when we go back to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, the Bible is telling us here that the prophetic gift would be manifested in God's end time remnant. Right? So historically, Revelation 12, 17, it's happening during the late 1790s, 1798, that the remnant starts arising. The remnant is cl um, classified or, or identified by keeping the commandments of God, all 10 of them. I mean, that, that alone right there um, just uh, clears the table of who God's people could probably be. That alone right there, all 10 commandments, right? All right? And, and, and we believe the fourth commandment, just as it reads, the seventh day is the Sabbath, okay? They believe the 10 commandments, they keep the 10 commandments, but they're also identifiable. You can identify who they are, arising historically after 1798. And then finally, the third characteristic is that there is a manifestation of the gift of prophecy in their midst. Who could it be? Think about that. 1790s, early 1800s. Were there churches that arose uh, during the 1800s? Mm -hmm. Were there churches that arose manifesting the gift of prophecy or having so-called prophets? Yeah, there were several of them. Right? Not, not just one. There were several of them. So how can you tell which one is God's end time remnant people? Now, I do want to speak a little bit about the prophetic gift before we answer that question. The concept of the prophetic gift is scandalous. It always has been, and it always will be. Immediately, probably when you heard me say the word, the manifestation of the gift of prophecy, or the manifestation of a prophet, probably in your minds there was a red flag. Oh, well, where's he going to get? Where's, where's he going to go? We're not charismatics. We're not Pentecostals. What is this about the prophetic gift? The concept of the prophetic gift is scandalous. It always has been. It always will be. There is this negative connotation when someone mentions the prophetic gift and that there is a prophet. We struggle with this concept. Why do we struggle with it? Abraham Heschel, a great Jewish rabbi of the 20th century, he fled from Nazi Germany just in time. And yes, he marched with Martin Luther King Jr. on the Selma Bridge for justice. And this is what Abraham Heschel writes about prophets. He says, to be a prophet is to be in fellowship with the feelings of God. To be a prophet is to experience communion with the divine consciousness. The prophet hears God's voice. The prophet looks at the world from God's perspective. The prophet enters into sympathy with the divine pathos. A prophet is one who stands and participates in the counsel of God and makes God audible. Tell me if that's not scandalous. 
Tell me if that isn't problematic. And the problem is that God chooses fallible individuals. He chooses people from our peers to be prophets. People who we know. People who grew up with us. In biblical times, he chose farmers. Elijah, when he received the prophetic call, he was, he was plowing his field behind the oxen when the prophetic call came to him. And so now Elijah, a farmer, has to stand in front of the kings of Israel and proclaim the word of the Lord. A farmer? How many of you listen when a farmer has something to say? How many of you listen? It's a farmer. What if we, what if we had a, a farmer running for, say, president of the United States of America? Would you take him seriously? Farmer. Well, maybe in this election, right? <laughs> in previous years, well, what does a farmer know? And yet God chose a farmer to be a prophet in Elijah. Amos was a farmer as well. In fact, when they were questioning his credentials, when Amos was standing before the kings of Israel and the rulers and the mighty people and the wealthy people, and they were questioning, who are you? You're just a farmer. And Amos responds, yes, I'm not a prophet and I'm not the son of a prophet. But the word of the Lord says, the concept of a prophet is scandalous, scandalous to us because God chooses fallible individuals. But yet the promise is given to us in 2 Chronicles. Jehoshaphat said, believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. We should not be afraid of the prophetic gift. In fact, the apostle Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 17, he says, do not quench the spirit and do not despise prophecy. Why is it that we struggle with the concept of a prophet? But let's say God chooses a farmer. And well, you know, it's a farmer and they don't really know what they're talking about, right? But yet God chose not just prophets, or sorry, not just farmers to be prophets. God also chose great men to be prophets. How about Moses? How much more qualification and credentials could you have? Moses, educated in the court of the Egyptians, Egypt being the, the, the world power of the day. Being educated in all their science and their religion, in their architecture, in their engineering. If someone was called, if someone had the full credentials to lead and be respected, it would be Moses. Isn't that right? But when Moses comes and says, the word of the Lord says, let my people go. How did they receive him? Who are you? Who are you? Isn't that something? I mean, if you had the option, I mean, I'm I'm trying to think here. If you had the option to be led by Moses or to be led by me, who would you choose? Moses. I would choose Moses, you know? If he chose me, I'll be looking at you weird. What are you doing? You know, follow Moses. I'm following him, right? I mean, he has qualifications, right? But yet still, when Moses comes in in his prophetic office, the people look at him and, they, and they're scandalized and they're like, who are you? Who are you? Why is the prophetic gift scandalous? Why do we struggle with the prophetic gift, with the concept of the prophetic gift? We fear what we cannot control. 
the supernatural manifestations of the power of God in the life of the prophet. We can't control that. And so when a farmer comes and speaks to the kings of Israel and is manifesting the power of God and the kings of Israel can't control that, it worries us, something that we can't control. And oftentimes the prophet is against the establishment, more often than not. That makes us feel uncomfortable. And that's why we say, who, who are you? But in fact, I, I actually want to say that the fact that a prophet is against the establishment is most likely one of the signs that that prophet is a true prophet. Because notice what God says here in these passages. In Jeremiah, he says, the prophets who keep telling them, remember in the Babylonian exile, in the Babylonian captivity, the prophets who keep telling them, you will not see the sword or suffer famine. Indeed, I will give you lasting peace in this place. The prophets who are prophesying good things, right? And don't we like people to tell us good things, right? We like that. If someone tells us something we don't like, how do we respond to that? Well, I don't know. Who are you to tell me that? Notice what God says. The Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, false divinations, idolatries, and delusions of their own minds. Why do we struggle with the prophetic gift? We struggle with it because the prophet often makes us feel uncomfortable, often tells us things that we don't want to hear. And so now it's easy. For example, we don't have any problem. We don't have any problems with the prophets that wrote in here, do we? Right? We don't have any problems with this, right? Who has a problem with, with the prophets that wrote in here? We don't have a problem with them, right? And if we, and we start reading the, one of the prophetic books, and we find something that we don't like in this prophetic book, all we have to do is this. And then that prophet isn't bothering us anymore. That's all we had to do. You know, we just had to ignore it. And, uh, and that's why we, today we live in an age where the Bible is more accessible than ever before, but yet it's one of the ages that are, is the darkest because we're reading something we don't like, and then we just do this. Problem solved. But what if that prophet is alive? What if that prophet is alive, is a real person, and is speaking things that is making you feel uncomfortable, is speaking things that you don't like. You can shut the message of a book, and that's why in the Middle Ages, they would burn the Bibles, they would keep Bibles away from people. But it's much harder, excuse me for this language, but it's much harder to shut up a person who is alive. There's only a few ways to do that. And that's why the majority of Old Testament prophets, they were either killed, murdered, sawn asunder, thrown into dungeons. Because the word of the prophet was making people feel uncomfortable. We struggle with the prophetic gift. We struggle with the concept of a prophet. And then perhaps we struggle with it because um, there are false prophets out there. And so sometimes people say, well, I just don't want to be deceived by anybody, so I just won't believe in anybody that is manifesting the gift of prophecy. But we shouldn't do that. The Bible tells us by their fruit, you shall know them. By their teaching, we shall know them. So if we have a prophet 
who is not living a godly lifestyle, and a prophet who is saying things that are contrary to Scripture, we can immediately know that. Now, that's not, that prophet isn't true. But that doesn't mean that we have to close the door to the possibility of any manifestation of the gift of prophecy. And so we go back to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, speaking about our Adventist identity. Historically, we're in the time period of the 1780s and the 1800s. And God says that a remnant would arise. They are faithful. They are obedient. They believe in in keeping the commandments of God. You can clearly identify them and, and know who they are. And then they have the manifestation of the gift of prophecy. And so... As Seventh-day Adventists, we believed that the gift of prophecy was manifested in the life of Ellen White. Now, when that happened, and we'll watch a, we'll watch a video about that um, come October 29, tell the world, and we'll watch that, our Adventist pioneers didn't like that. They, they, they were scandalized by that. They were afraid of that. Our Adventist pioneers were, were solid biblical students and then you have to enter into the world. And then the 17-year-old girl. 17. Who, who's 17 here? Anybody say, do you have a 17-year-old here this morning? No 17-year-olds? Do you have a 16-year-old? 16? All right, Chloe. Okay. So if Chloe all of a sudden one day stands up, and I'm just using Chloe as an example. I hope you don't mind. If all of a sudden Chloe stood up one day and said, the word of the Lord says. What do we think about that? Come on, Be real. And be honest. It's a little weird. You know, the elders would have to come to me. Pastor, you need to visit Chloe and find out what's going on there. And, uh, you know, uh, is she all right? You know, is everything, what's, what, you know, what's, what's going on there? You know, don't let her stand up in church, you know, and have a prophetic manifestation in church. It's kind of weird. Uh, we're Adventists. We kind of don't do that. Um, our Adventist pioneers didn't want that. Not only was she 17 years old, but she was a she. She was a she. In the 1800s, correct me if I'm wrong, I think women couldn't vote in the 1800s. Women didn't have a voice in the 1800s. They couldn't own property in the 1800s. She was a she. Surely it can't be the word of the Lord. False prophet, you know, she's, she was hit in the head, right? She was hit in the head when she was young. It's just kind of, what is it, um, seizures or, you know, she has, she's delusional. Uh, things aren't right up there. Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, we believe that the gift of prophecy was manifested in the life of Ellen White. It wasn't something that we wanted. Our pioneers were skeptical of this. But by applying the, the test of a true prophet, our Adventist pioneers were convinced that God was using this woman in a mighty way, in a prophetic way. Well, what does that mean about her writings? It means that we believe that her writings, they speak with prophetic authority. And that her writings, they will provide comfort, they provide guidance, they provide instruction, and they also provide correction to the church. In my experience, there is a blessing when you familiarize yourself with her writings and you put them to practice. That's been my experience. It's been a blessing. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't always like what she says. Some of the things that she says makes me uncomfortable, Uh, especially when I'm reading books like Testimonies to Ministers. She's writing testimonies, right, to ministers about all the things we're not doing. 
You know, I quickly just, okay, we're good with that. Let me open testimonies to the church. That's the one I want to read. But all the things my church members aren't doing right. Right? Or, or vice versa, we, we have church members who, who specialize in testimonies to the ministers, right? So they can know everything that the pastor isn't doing right. You know, there's, I don't always like what she says. But that's one of the signs of a true prophet. That's the role of prophets to make us feel uncomfortable, to push us, to shake things up. Now, there's some people that at the mention of Ellen White, they, they get stiff and they're, oh, I don't uh. I don't know. Um, There's a lot of negative reactions to her, um, probably for a couple reasons. There's some Adventists that have the bad habit of only quoting Ellen White. Have you heard those kind of Adventists? You know, they they know more Ellen White than they do of the Bible. that's That's a bad habit. We shouldn't do that. In fact, Ellen White says that. She's like, know your Bible. Read your Bible. Quote the Bible. Um, There's other individuals who use her writings as a club and as a whip. Have you been one of the victims? Of Ellen White's whip. Ellen White says, you shouldn't be eating that. Ellen White says, you shouldn't be doing that. Um, In fact, Ellen White, in fact, says to those people, she says, stop using my writings. My writings are not for the purpose of a club or a whip. And then, of course, there are the haters. The haters of Ellen White. Um, I have read many of the criticisms out there. The truth is, without getting into depth, it's a bunch of nonsense. It's a bunch of nonsense. All the... All the criticisms that are out there. Oftentimes, I've found people that are against Ellen White, but they've never taken the time to actually read what she's written. And so my advice to you is, just read. Just read her. You know, don't be, don't be prejudiced because of what somebody else says. Just pick up one of her books and read it and see for yourself what you think. My experience has been that the more I know about the Bible, the more I study the more I appreciate the depth of analysis and insight with which she writes. She was an incredible Bible student, an incredible Bible scholar, the insights that she, that she presents. My experience with her is read for yourself. Read for yourself what she writes, and you decide. Do her writings take the place of Scripture? No, they don't. Are her writings Scripture? No, they aren't. Her writings are there to point us back to the Bible, to point us back to Jesus, to testify of Jesus. And isn't that what Revelation 12, 17 says? They they keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus. Because ultimately, that's what the prophetic gift does for us. It points us to Jesus. So what I want to ask you this morning is to familiarize yourself with her writings. They are a treasure. Can you do that? I'm already, I've already assigned the, the homework of reading The Great Controversy, and that's fine. You can do that. But I encourage you to pick up another one of her books. Just recently, my wife and I, we finished reading The Adventist Home um, in preparation you know, for, for our child. And, and we're going to delve into child guidance um, after this. I encourage you, what is there one book that you can read of hers? She's written books about health. If you're struggling with your health, how about picking up one of the books that she's written, Ministry of Healing? Um, if you're wondering about education, why don't you pick up one of her books about education? If you're wondering, if you're a young person and you're wondering about your direction in life, she wrote a book uh, or compiled, there's a compilation called um, Messages to Young People. How about that? If you're thinking about getting married or dating, you know, she's written a lot about that subject. All right? we, don't want, we don't want you to get married to the wrong person, right? Uh, we want you to marry the right person. We want you to be happy. 
and she's written counsel about that. You know, there are bad people that you can marry, and they'll ruin your life, and there's good people that you can marry, and your life will be happy, and everything will be okay. So uh, read, read something. Read, you know, just read something that she's written. What is one book that you can read this morning or this month? It is Adventist Heritage Month. You know, I'm surprised when I hear about Adventists and they're like, who's Ellen White? And I'm like, no, what do you mean you don't know who Ellen White is? As Seventh-day Adventists, we should all be familiar with who she is. In my experience, there is a blessing in her writings. So what I want to ask you this morning is, can you pick one book of hers to read? Can you do that this morning? You want to do that? So when we come back to our identity, rooted in the second coming, but then when we see God's remnant, keeping the commandments of God, being clearly identifiable, and having the manifestation of the gift of prophecy, there is no other church than the Seventh-day Adventist church. Are we perfect? No, we're not perfect. But God is guiding us. God is leading us. And having that clear identity of how God has led us to know that you're not just in any other church. You're in a prophetic church. You're in a church that God has called forth. It gives you a greater sense of identity. So many people that I've met that they've been members of other churches and they tell me, you know, Pastor, I just knew that there just wasn't something right. You know, and I would read the Bible and I just couldn't make sense. And then I would go to another denomination and I, I just knew that something wasn't right. And, and it wasn't until I came to the Seventh-day Adventist church that I knew that everything, all the dots connected, all the pieces fit together. This podcast is brought to you by the Jacksonville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. Connect with us on www.jaxsda.org or on Facebook and YouTube. We look forward to sharing more inspiring messages with you.